Well, today marks the first Sunday of Advent. Of course, as Ben just said, uh, the Advent season is the time of the year that the church traditionally recognizes the first coming of Christ. And of course, now we eagerly await his second coming. First of all, I need to apologize to Jeff. Jeff, I am going to use your research material, just not this week. Okay. Um, this morning, I'm going to take just a little different approach by going to a text that few, if any, would probably associate with the Advent season. It's surely not a classic Advent text. But in light of Advent, I want to ask a simple and important question. This morning, I want to examine the question of why. I want to examine the why of Christmas. Now, before we go much further, I know that if we would uh, diligently work our way through this text, there are several answers to that question of why. But this morning, I want to examine the question purely from God's perspective. Why did God send his son to take on human flesh? What is the purpose of the incarnation? Why did God send his son to be born as a helpless babe, to live a life of perfect obedience, culminating with his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father? Why did all of this happen? Now, the answer to the question that I'm raising can be broken down into two components or two pieces, if you will. And the two components, to make it easy for us to understand, would be cause and effect. What was the cause of the why and what is the effect of the why? What is the cause, as Paul says, beginning in verse 3, what is the cause of God's children being recipients of every spiritual blessing in Christ. What is the cause of that? And what is God's desired effect? What is God's desired outcome of the fact that we have been recipients of all of these spiritual blessings? Or we could say it in a more narrow way for our time this, together this morning. What is the cause of Christmas and what is the effect of Christmas? Now, Paul addresses the cause very clearly in three passages, uh, excuse me, three times in this passage. So grab your Bibles and stick with me here, and let's look at several passages, right? Several verses right here in this passage. The first one would be verse five. It says he predestined us for adoption to himself. That's that's the Father. The Father predestined us for adoption to himself, to the Father, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So if you want to make a mental note or a mark in your Bible, uh, take note of that last or, or the phrase, according to the purpose of his will. Then look at verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. Again, this is the Father's will according to his purpose, which he, the Father, set forth in Christ. So this time, take note of the, the phrase, the mystery of his will. Then one last time in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, this is God the Father. He's referring to God the Father. 
So take, take note of this phrase, all things according to the counsel of his will. So what is it that Paul repeatedly makes reference to in verses 3 through 14? Well, before I answer that question, I do want to go back and highlight the spiritual blessings that the Apostle Paul has laid before us here this morning. Uh, What is the cause? Let me put it this way. What is the cause that Paul repeatedly makes reference to? First thing I want you to see is that Paul raises our sight line, if you will, above the material world. To what? To all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And I think this is a truth that we need to keep in mind, particularly at this time of year, because there is an emphasis on giving of material gifts. There's nothing wrong with that. But particularly for us as Christians, our focus should never be on the material. Rather, our focus should be on the spiritual. And so what Paul does here is he, he, he instructs us, as it were, to lift our eyes, to gaze upward, and to realize just the magnitude of the spiritual blessings that come to every one of God's children. And as Christians, we must always remember that the most valuable gifts are not material in nature. They are always spiritual gifts. So what are the spiritual gifts that every believer receives? Well, Paul begins with God choosing us for salvation. God choosing us for salvation. Look at verse 4. Paul writes, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. A verse that is crystal clear. A verse that I don't know how you could argue with. God chose us before the foundation of the world. And we'll see later on what the implications of this choosing before the foundation of the world, how that impacts our lives. And if we give a moment's consideration, we quickly understand why Paul begins with this as the first blessing, if you will. Why does he begin with the Father's choosing? You know why? Apart from God's choosing of us, we would never experience any of the spiritual blessings that are highlighted by Paul in this passage. In order for you and I to experience these spiritual blessings, the first step had to be God choosing us for salvation that allows us to experience all of these spiritual blessings. Okay? Very it, seems, it seems very basic, and it is, I think, but it's also very important. And I'm afraid as Christians, we simply don't give enough time to the thought, that, to the thought and to the reality that God chose us. God chose us. We didn't choose him. He chose us. And perhaps part of the reason that we don't give much thought to it is because we think more highly of ourselves than we should. We feel and we mistakenly believe that we have more ability than what the Bible says that we have. And when you properly understand this reality, that apart from the choosing of God, we would never experience any of these spiritual blessings. You know what it does? It strips us of all pride. It humbles us to the core 
because we realized that we had absolutely nothing to do with our salvation. It is all the result of God choosing us. We are humbled as we realize, as Jonah said, that salvation is of the Lord. Second, Paul tells us that God has predestined us for adoption. And again, here's another truth that we need to meditate on because it tells us, informs us, instructs us of just what a tremendous spiritual blessing it is to be adopted by God the Father. Can an orphan child adopt themselves out? They can be candidates for adoption, but they can't force a family to adopt them, can they? See, likewise, we would never be adopted into God's family if God had not acted. It was God who took the initiative. It was God who set the plan in motion that allows us to become a part of his family. And as adopted children, we have full rights and privileges that go along with being a part of God's family. You know, in the physical realm, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know this for a fact, but I wouldn't be surprised that if, some, that if parents are looking to adopt a child, perhaps they're looking for the perfect child. They want certain characteristics. Perhaps they want a, a boy or a girl or whatever it may be. And maybe they want one with blonde hair and blue eyes. Or maybe they want one with brown hair and green eyes or whatever. And those that don't match up, they, they don't want. If they don't fit all their, their criteria of what they think is the, the perfect child, they perhaps may not adopt them. And aren't you glad that God doesn't operate in that way? Aren't you glad that God intentionally goes out, as Paul says, and he doesn't choose the, the powerful and the mighty and the wise of this world. No, he goes out and he chooses those that the world wants little to do with and the, that the world rejects. And he says, those are my people. Those are the, 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 those that I'm going to adopt and bring into my family. I mean, think about our adoption. It's really a wonderful thing. Conversely, on the other hand, you know what it says about all those who are not in Christ? They're orphaned from God, and Satan is their father. It's a staggering truth to think that we have been adopted into God's family. Then Paul moves on to our redemption in verse 7. So what's it mean to be redeemed? Well, Paul goes on to explain. He says, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, I know that there's more to the word uh, redemption than that, but it's not less than that. The forgiveness of our trespasses. And again, at this special time of the year, we would do well to take the time to meditate on the forgiveness that every Christian experiences only because they have been purchased with the precious blood of Christ, as Peter says. We would, we would do ourselves such benefit if we would just sit down and think about all that God has done for us. And we need to do that on a regular basis. Then to verse 11, Paul tells us about our inheritance. Every Christian has an inheritance that is beyond measure, that is of infinite worth. It's awaiting us. Great inheritance. These are all things that God has done for us. Then in verse 13, Paul tells us of our sealing with and by the Holy Spirit. In other words, 
we are eternally safe and secure as members of God's adopted family. Nobody can snatch us away from God's family. We are eternally secure, regardless of what comes our way, regardless of the troubles and trials that we face. Nobody can snatch us from God's hand. And why do all of those who experience these blessings, as Paul describes them here, how is this possible? How is it possible for those who were born in sin, those who were born as rebels, those who were born spiritually dead, how is it possible for sinners like that to experience all these blessings and more? Well, the answer is found in the three passages, the three verses that I highlighted earlier. The only way we experience these things is because it is God's will that we experience them. We are the beneficiaries of God's will. Apart from God's will, we would never experience any of these things. Do you realize that, beloved? Apart from God working in your life, you would never experience any of these things. It wasn't our will. It wasn't our idea. We were rebels. We were on the run from God like Adam and Eve. We want nothing to do with God. As Christians, we truly need to understand that no one seeks God. And Paul makes this crystal clear in Romans chapter 3. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Say, well, what about those people who say that they're seeking God? The reality is they're seeking the things that God can provide, but they want them apart from God. They want peace. They want joy. They want happiness. But they don't want the peace and joy and happiness that comes from bowing the knee in repentance and acknowledgement of the Lordship of Christ. Okay? Thankfully, God in his grace, though we wanted nothing to do with him, He wanted something to do with us. He wasn't ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of us to to call us his children. I can just summarize this portion. I would say it's all because of God. It's all because of God. Now, let me reframe this discussion for a few moments. I sent Jeff a text this week on purpose. Well, normally I send texts on purpose, but, you know, this had real purpose behind it. And I asked him a simple question. Jeff, you remember what it was? What was it? You're right, you're right. Yeah. Is the will of God synonymous with the decrees of God? I wanted to see he's a seminary lad. Let's see if he's getting his money's worth for his education. And he texted back the right answer. And he even sent me some screenshots of uh, Spurgeon's catechism which was a great help to me. Here's what, I, here's what I've been driving to for a few moments. The will of God is synonymous with the decrees of God. Therefore, we celebrate Christmas because of God's eternal and unchangeable decrees. So, 
when you came in this morning, hopefully you were given a half sheet of paper, and it has on it paragraphs one and two of the um, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. It has chapter three of God's decrees, paragraphs one and two. So I want you to read along with me. And by the way, next to your Bible, and this, this may sound strange, next to your Bible, you ought to be studying this confession. Okay? Everybody should be studying this confession. Paragraph 1 reads as follows. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the, by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, Excuse me, freely and, and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his degrees. Paragraph 2. God knows everything that could happen under any given conditions. However, his decrees of anything is not based on foreseeing it of foreseeing it in the future or foreseeing that it would occur under such conditions. That destroys the theology of most of the church today. It obliterates it. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but I do think I need to say this. The, 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 the dominant position of much of the church today is they, they say, yes, I, I, I believe in election. But if you drill down into it, they say, well, the election that I believe is that God looked down through the quarters of time and he saw what Billy Bob was going to do. He, he knew that Billy Bob was going to choose him for salvation, so therefore God elected him. Now, according to paragraph two of the confession, and more importantly, what the Bible says, that is not true. And that is false hope. It's bad theology. And it has caused so much damage. We've got so many people walking around who would tell you, yes, I'm a Christian. But they don't live like a Christian. They never come to church. They don't read the Bible. They don't pray. They certainly don't share the gospel. Yet because of some quote-unquote decision they made, Someone has convinced them somewhere along the line that they are part of God's family. And nothing could be further from the truth. Now, why would I introduce God's decrees in a sermon about Christmas? Well, as I've already stated, the only reason Christmas exists is because God willed it to exist. Apart from the will of God, apart from the decrees of God... It wouldn't take place. And, but there's a much, there's another reason as well. A proper understanding of God's decrees brings the believer heavenly comfort and heavenly joy. Now, comfort and joy, those are words we hear a lot this time of year, right? God rest you, merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay, for 
Jesus Christ, our Savior, was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. What's it say? Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. By the way, that song was originally titled, God Rest Ye Merry Christians. Much more appropriate title, isn't it? What did the angel say to the shepherds? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Why did the angel show up that night? Did they have a void in their schedule? Were they looking for something to do? No. At that exact moment in time, God sent them. Why did God send them? Because of his eternal decree. That's why they showed up. That's why they delivered the message that they did. Let's think about those words, comfort and joy. Survey, our, survey the landscape of our culture and tell me where you can look to find genuine biblical comfort and joy. Where do you find it? I don't mean the joy you get when you look at a puppy. It makes you happy for a few moments until it does its business where it shouldn't, and you're irritated. I mean real joy that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven and your eternity is fixed. Your eternity is unchangeable. And this tremendous glory awaits you. The comfort that comes from knowing that God has promised to work all things together for good. The comfort and joy that helps us to persevere through the hard times of our life. War, does that bring comfort and joy? Inflation, does that bring comfort and joy? Fractured relationships, does that bring comfort and joy? No, the only reason we have any comfort and joy is because of God's eternal decree to send his only begotten son to die for our sins. The only reason we have comfort and joy is because of God's choosing of us. Everything that God does. Now, I know this is a hard pill for some to swallow. Everything that God does and allows flows from his eternal decrees. Many Christians, with the best of intentions, I believe, reject this. Because they think somehow it makes God a monster. And you'll hear things like, I could never serve a God like that. Or I could never love a God, a God like that. But once we as human beings begin to put limitations on God, we're not loving and serving the God of the Bible we are loving and serving a God of our own making. And that God will fail you. Everything that God does, everything that God allows flows from his decrees. And here's the real life application of that truth. There are no random events. There are no chance happenings. Everything that takes place, takes place because of the decrees of God. Now, as a Christian, when you think of all the bad things that have happened to you, 
you must, at, the, at those times, remember the promises of God. The promises of God are a part of the decrees of God. Correct? We want the promise, but it's a package deal. It comes with the decrees of God. Paul said in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those that love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That could not be true. It would not provide any comfort if it were not a part of God's eternal decree. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing because of the decrees of God. Every person who comes to faith in Christ, they come to Christ because of God's decree. Our adoption is a result of God's decree. Our, re our redemption is a result of God's decree. Our inheritance is a result of God's decree. Our hope in Christ is a result of God's decree. God's choosing of us is a result of his decree. Our life, our very existence is the result of God's decree. Your death, my death, is the result of God's decree. As one commentator said, God's decrees are his expression of his independence and relies upon no one else nor needs no one else. And he cites Isaiah 46.10. Listen to Isaiah 46.10. What we have in Isaiah 46.10 is, is, is Isaiah is recording the words, but he's recording the words that God says. Isaiah 46.10, God says, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. These are God's words. And this is God himself defining for us what a decree is and the guarantee of the decree. And when you think about this, what, what is God doing here? He is, he is guaranteeing that everything that he decrees will come to pass. He declares, now think about this. He declares the end from the beginning. God is not playing catch up. There's a, another bad theology today called open theism that says that God doesn't really know what's going to happen next. God simply reacts the best way that he can after it happens. Nothing could be further from the truth. He declares, just try and wrap your mind around this, he declares the end from the beginning. He knows everything that is going to happen he knows when it's going to happen. He knows the person who's going to carry out whatever happens. He knows all of those things. He knows the beginning from the end. Before the foundation of the world, God had chosen his family. And again, this knocks down another straw man that people put out there that, well, you know, God looks down through time and he sees that uh, Billy Bob, he's a pretty good guy and uh, so he elects him to salvation. No, no. 
before anyone existed, before they committed any act, good or evil, if God has chosen them for salvation, he's chosen them for salvation. It's dependent upon his own will and his own desire. Well, let's make this personal. This means that God has loved you from the very beginning, even before the beginning of time as we know it. God loved you. God continues to love you. God will always love you. Why? It's part of his eternal decree. He said, I'm going to love Devin, and I'm going to love Devin for eternity. Isn't that comforting? Listen, all hell can break loose in our lives, but one thing is sure, God is going to love us. That's an amazing truth when you think about it. Again, this is something that we need to sit down and meditate on. Think of all the implications of this. I can say more, but I'll move on. Let me flesh out to the decrees of God with four statements. What do we mean by the decrees of God? Number one, God's decrees are the explicit expressions of his will. And we see that from Isaiah 46.10, so I won't read that again. Number two, God's decrees are, the, are his promises that his will will be accomplished. God's decrees are his promise that his will will be accomplished. Write down Hebrews 6.17 for me. Which says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. You know, you know what the writer of Hebrews is saying there? God swore by himself. Okay? You can't get any stronger than that, can you? Uh, number three, God's decrees are an expression of his authority. John 19, 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. A lot of powerful people in this world are going to come up, smack dab, run headlong, headstrong into a wall that they can't move and are going to realize they absolutely had no authority in this world except for the authority that God allowed them to have. Number four, God's decrees are his guarantee. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Rhetorical question, right? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The answer is, is he said, if he said that he's going to do it, he's going to do it. If he said he's going to fulfill it, he's going to fulfill it. Now, for Christians, that is an incredible promise, isn't it? Because when he said, I'll forgive your sins if you put your faith and trust in Christ, guess what? He's going to forgive your sins if you put your faith and trust in Christ. But for the unbeliever, it's a terrifying thing. Because God says, I'm angry with the wicked every day, and I will judge sin. And he will judge sin. But for the Christian, I, I want to emphasize this. God's decrees are not to be feared. Rightly understood, they are a tremendous source of comfort and assurance and joy. Because we know that he has decreed our future. And we know that we are part of his family. 
And we know that God looks out for his children. I mentioned this verse earlier. You know, Christians love this verse. And they love to quote Romans 8, 28. But have you considered this? Let me emphasize this again. How could Paul write those words with confidence? How could Paul write those words with confidence? Because he believed in the, the, the decrees of God. He wasn't just going off the cuff here. He knew this is consistent with God's character. There's no if this happens, then this might happen in that verse. No, it will happen. Because God has decreed all things, that means all things work together for good for those that love him. And beloved, apart from God's decrees, we could have very little confidence in that verse. A lot of people say, why, why do you believe in Reformed theology? Because I don't want to hope so theology. I can't live by a hope so theology. I can't live with a God who's less than sovereign, who's less than all-powerful. I can't live with that kind of God. I have no confidence in that kind of God. How do I know he's going to be there for me? But beloved, when we go to the God of the Bible, let's just forget, let's just forget Reformed theology for a minute. When, when we go and we examine the scriptures and we see what God has said about himself and who he is and what he has promised to do, I can trust that God with my life. See? Why do we have so many fearful Christians? Could it be they have a hope-so God? They have a hope-so theology? They're not confident in the God that they've been taught about? Could be. Spurgeon, this is what Jeff sent me in his catechism. He asks in question seven, what are the decrees of God? Answer, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. So we know the cause now, what's the effect? We've examined the cause of all of our spiritual blessings. We've heard, we, I think we probably all have heard this, that for every action, there is a reaction. For every effect, there is a cause, except for God. God is the uncaused cause. But in our world, in our life, every cause has an effect. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the intended result of the outworking of God's will, of the outworking of God's decrees? What is the effect of God working through his will directly and through his acts of providence, what is the effect of that? Well, thankfully, Paul shows us not only the cause, but the effect. Let me give you three more, pass, uh, three more verses, sets of verses. Look at verses 5 and 6. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
Look at verse 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You see a pattern emerging here? Look at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what is the cause of all of our spiritual blessings? God's decrees. What is the effect? The praise of his glory. What is God's intended outcome in giving us all of these spiritual blessings? It's the praise of his glory. Every believer is a demonstration, an example, an illustration of the glory of God. Do you see that? God's decrees, the intended end of God's decrees is his glory. And our praise is the recognition of his glory. That's why he says in here three times, Paul gives us all of these things that God has done for us, all of these spiritual blessings. And how are we to respond to them? We are to praise him for his glory. Literally live lives of praise. And I'll be honest with you, I struggle. Now, when I reached this point in the sermon, I thought, man, how in the world do I say this? How do I, how do I convey this to, to everybody? Well, the best way is always through Scripture. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Say, so what does the praise uh, to, to the praise of his glory looks like? Well, w- w- I don't think we have a better example of it than we have right here in Revelation chapter 5. So let's start reading verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Who's, who, who takes the scroll? Jesus does. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. By the way, Jesus taking the scroll, we know it's symbolic language here, but it's also a demonstration of the outworking of God's decree. This is what God determined ahead of time, before time. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ran, notice this, you ransomed people, done deal. Accomplished, decreed in eternity past, carried out in time. You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made, not going to, you have made. Why have you made this? Why is this working out this way? It was God's decree. Have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, 
Notice this. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be what? Blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the praise of his glory. Say what does the praise of his glory looks like? look like? Go read Revelation chapter 5. It's an acknowledgement of the fulfillment of God's decrees. It's an appreciation of God's decrees. It's a joyful recognition and celebration that God's will has come to pass. This is the praise of his glory. Beloved, everything is being worked out for the good of God's people and for God's glory. And because we know this is true, we praise him for his display of glory. Why Christmas? For the praise of his glory. That's why Christmas exists. Doesn't that give us a refreshing perspective on Christmas? It really should. You know, this time of year, you, you can't go anywhere without hearing Christmas music. And uh, I, I'm, I, I'm not against Christmas music. I like, I like, I like uh, good Christmas music. I, that, I'm not going to mention that one girl's name. She'll charge me a quarter royalties just for saying her name. But uh, how many times will we hear during this season, have yourself a merry little Christmas? Too many times, probably. Every Christian can have far more than a merry little Christmas. Literally, every day is Christmas for us as Christians, and it's an incredible Christmas because we already know what we're getting, and it doesn't spoil the joy, it enhances our joy. When we understand all that God has done for us through Christ and that we are present tense recipients of this right here, right now, you don't have to wait till December 25th. These gifts have been opened for you. These gifts have been given to you. These are yours, believer. Love them. Relish them. Rejoice in them. Do you realize the only reason that you're here this morning and others are not are because of God's decree? That's something to think about, isn't it? You're here and others are not because of God's decree. God wanted you here. Don't take this lightly. God wanted you here this morning to hear this message. This message. As hard as it may be for some of us to come to terms with. But he brought you here for a reason. And so you have to ask yourself, am I truly one of God's children? Now the reason I bring that up is because Perhaps the reason God brought you here this morning 
was to confront you with that truth. Are you genuinely one of God's adopted children? Have you come to grips with the fact that he is your creator and that you are accountable to him and even the smallest sin is an act of rebellion towards him and makes you a lawbreaker, therefore you are guilty in his sight and unless you acknowledge your sin, the problem of your sin, how offensive it is to God, unless you acknowledge that and turn from your sins, repent of your sins, if you've never done that, you're not a Christian. Is that why God brought you here this morning? I don't know. To become a part of God's family, you must come to Christ. I think that's one of my favorite invitations of Jesus. Jesus says, come to me. I say, what's that mean? It implies some movement. It's not the status quo. It's not doing things the way that you've always done them. It's an acknowledgement that things need to change in your life, that you are indeed a sinner in need of a Savior. And the Savior invites you to come, but you've got to come. I've said it before, one of, one of, one of my, my greatest fears is when, when I present the gospel, because the gospel does have a universal application, a uh, universal call to it uh, to, in a sense, and, and I'm so afraid that the unbeliever will sit there and say, well, he's using words like all and everyone. And so that, that must include me. No, no. The gospel demands a personal response. Have you come to Christ personally? To come to Christ is to turn from your sins and to turn to Christ, to confess that you've sinned against a holy, righteous God and ask him to forgive you. The Bible says you will do that. He will forgive your sins. And he will adopt you into his family. I either read this this week or heard someone say this this week. The question was asked of Spurgeon. How can I know if I'm one of God's elect? And Spurgeon, the jewel that he was, he said this. He says, come to Christ and then you'll know you're one of God's elect.'" 